as I sat considering what I would preach on for a new evening series, cast my mind about, I looked at various ideas that I'd had, and then I thought, hold on, I'll check my notebook that I take to various conferences. And after every conference, there's a bit at the back of my notebook where I write down what books have been recommended, what are the key lessons I've learned at that conference, and what ideas I've got uh, from the conference. And there in my, my conference notebook was, Preach on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we're going to do. The speaker, David Vaughan, the Banner Ministers Conference this year, had spoken on the Lordship of Christ. And what he said is going to shape a lot of this series. And he said, he said The Lordship of Christ shapes all Christian piety. What does that mean? He says, the Lordship of Christ shapes our reaction to Christ, how we live the Christian life, how we see Jesus, how we see ourselves, how we see obedience. It shapes everything in the Christian life, how we think of Jesus Christ as Lord. Are we happy servants? The the servant in um, Matthew, Luke 19, wasn't a happy servant. He begrudged serving his master. And is it possible that we could begrudge serving our master? Uh, so I want us to think of Jesus Christ as Lord over the next number of weeks. Why preach on it? Um, let me give you very quickly, I think, five reasons. First of all, because you don't need to take great note of them, but just to, to, to show that this is important. Because uh, he's called Lord. It's his title. Hundreds of times in the New Testament. I did a search and it was over 500 uh, and I didn't go through to to weed out um, some of the varying times the Lord doesn't refer to him but refers to somebody else. But hundreds of times uh, he's called Lord. He even calls himself Lord when he says, you know, he's talking about the last judgment and he said, that, and the, you will say to me, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And whenever we move past the Gospels into the, the letters, Jesus is nearly always given a title. It might be Jesus Christ. It might be Christ Jesus. It might be The Lord Jesus Christ. He's given a title and this is one of his titles. And it tells us something about him. So that's why I want to think on it. Because it's his title. Another reason is because there's a debate. Not really a debate that perhaps affects us. um, But there's been a debate over uh, years as to whether Jesus is Savior and or Lord. You know, some people have been known to say, well, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then a while later they'll say, well, I've now accepted him as my Lord. As if there's a division between those two things. Well, there's not. He's a saving Lord. He's a lordly Savior. Those things can't be divided. As if the Jesus who saves is not the Jesus who changes. He's the, the one who saves us is the one who transforms us. Those he justifies, he also sanctifies. He's Saviour and Lord. 
So it's important that we grasp that he's not just someone who takes away our sin, but he's someone that we are to obey. Because there's debate, because there's doubt. There's doubt. Doubt that perhaps we sometimes feel. Is he a good Lord? Is he a good master? Is he really kind? Are his plans really the best and for my good? And that doubt, if it's there, can foster a begrudging obedience. I'll do this. Not really convinced it's the best, but I'll do it because he says so. So we want to see the loveliness of his lordship because there's doubt. Fourthly, because there are riches to be enjoyed. And that's actually why uh, I wrote in my notebook, must preach on the lordship of Christ. Because I was enjoying the riches that I was getting from David Vaughan so much that I thought, I want you to enjoy some of those riches. So I'm like, you know, you've watched MasterChef and you've seen the top chef cook this fantastic dish and the people who get to taste it have been ooing and eyeing. You think, oh, I want to try that so others can enjoy it. Well, David Vaughan was the master chef, and I'm the other one. But there are riches to be enjoyed. And then also, fifth reason, because it's what we... Uh, as covenanters, as reformed Presbyterians, are about. Our logo has on it the words, for Christ's crown and covenant. Our forefathers fought and died for this great truth. And about a week ago, I started reading this book. If you wanted to be convinced of Christ being king over all things and orchestrating all events, well, about a week ago I started reading this book on Messiah the Prince, um, written by uh, a Reformed Presbyterian minister in Glasgow in the 1800s, all about Christ as Lord. And as I read it, uh, read the opening chapters, oh, this is lovely. There's some lovely stuff in here that I want to share. And then... The two thoughts coincided, and I'm thankful uh, that they coincided, organized and orchestrated by our lovely Lord, so that his people can be fed. This book, let me give you a quote from the start of it. This book is about Jesus' long-range plan to give a new purpose to all parts of life, to spread righteousness and peace across the globe, across the street, and deep in our hearts. It is about his call for us to join him as loyal subjects in his kingdom, to take part in his great worldwide work of redemption. Does that not excite you? This is what we are called to do, to join him as loyal subjects in his kingdom, to take part in his great worldwide work of redemption. This isn't a cold title. Lord. Uh, Christians died. Your brothers and sisters in Christ died for this title. They would not say Caesar was Lord. They kept that title for Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. One uh, poet 
a man called George Herbert, uh, described this as the best love title, or his best love title for Jesus. My Master Jesus. Lord and Master, same thing. My Master Jesus. So two main uh, points this evening. First of all, he was made Lord because of his saving work. So made Lord because of his saving work. We do not simply call him Lord because he is God and therefore supreme over everything. He is supreme over everything. He is fully God. But this is not the lordship that he has as creator. He has all that. He is Lord of all because he made all. But this is a lordship given to him because of his work as Saviour, and we'll see that in a, in, a, in a moment. But let me read to you from Colossians 1, and we'll see that he, he's Lord over everything as God, as Creator. He's always King. Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and all things... And in him all things hold together. John 1 verse 3. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. He's the king of everything. He's the Lord of all. But the Bible also speaks about him being given authority, about him being given power, about him being seated on a throne, made to sit on that throne about a lordship that is conferred on the Son by the Father because of his saving work. And that's one of the reasons why it should be precious to us. He's not just the Lord of all because he is God. He is particularly Lord of all because of his work as your Savior. So we should treasure this title and what it means to us and what it uh, what it implies uh, to us. He's Lord of all because he came to save. He's made Lord so that he can bring about the salvation of his people and bring every one of his people safely home. He's the captain of our salvation. And as we think of, of being made Lord, I want us to think very briefly of uh, three things, just so that you can see this. He's given authority. Now, as God, he has all authority. But as your saviour king, he has given authority. We see that in Matthew 28, verse uh, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Of all nations. Ephesians 1 20 to 22 speaks of the power that God has exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. There he's being made to sit on the throne in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, 
not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And listen to this. This is one of William Symington, the, the Scottish Reformed Presbyterian pastor, one of his key verses. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him. He appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Even the passage in Philippians 2 Turn to it here. Philippians 2 verse 8 speaks about him humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him. He exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's exalted to this position. And even as we've looked in our studies in John, we've seen uh, that this authority has been given to him. It's particularly given to him at the resurrection. But he had it beforehand. You might think, well, how can that be? Well, think of it this way. When the English king, King George VI, died, they said, the king is dead, long live the queen. Queen Elizabeth came to power. And then you had her coronation sometime later. And she was crowned queen. Well, Jesus has his kingly power as your saviour, as mediator in his life. And at his resurrection, he is crowned, as it were, and given uh, authority, as it were, formally. But he has this authority even in his lifetime. John 5, 26 For the Father, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This was predicted. Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. So the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days. So one who is like God approaches one who is God and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's given authority. And he's given a people. He's given a people. Psalm 110 verse 3 speaks about your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Your troops, your people. Made explicit in John six thirty-nine. This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. So that the Father has given to the Son. John ten twenty nine. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then when he prays, John seventeen nine. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. John seventeen twenty four. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. He's been given a people before time began. God in the great 
council of eternity between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Father sets his electing love on a people. The Son is going to go and to give his life to redeem these people. And the Father gives the people to the Son as a reward for his obedience. He's the king of his people. That's the sort of king that he is. J.K. Wall, in writing the introduction to this book uh, about um, the kingship of Christ, uh, speaks of how up until about 1300 there was no king of England and no king of France, but rather a king of the English and a king of the French. He says a king didn't have dominion over a certain territory, or he did have dominion over a certain territory, but he understood his power not so much in territorial but in relational terms. And that's the way Jesus' power is. Yes, he's king over territory, but his kingship is particularly over his people. He has been given a people. And because he has been given authority and given a people, he has a task. He has been given a task. And that task takes in many different factors. In John 5, 36, he speaks about the work that the Father has given me and the works that the Father has given him to do, the miracles, the obedience. In John 14, 9, uh, we read, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Part of his task was to die and rise again. His task, too, is to bring his people safely home. That's why he's given authority. So that he can take the people that the Father has given to him and to bring you safely home. He's been given a task to bring many sons to glory. The girls in their catechism for Sabbath school and for this morning were learning the question, I think, You know, how is Christ our Redeemer? Or what work does Christ do as our Redeemer? As our Redeemer, uh, Christ is prophet, priest, and king, both in his uh, humiliation and in his exaltation. He's a prophet, a priest, and a king. As a priest, he offers the sacrifice for our sins. As a prophet, he proclaims the great work of salvation that he has accomplished. But if he was only prophet and priest... If he wasn't a king or a lord, he would not be able to apply it to your life and mine. His work would sort of hang in the air. But no, he has been given a task. And he has been made lord and king uh, so that he can succeed in that task. So that you can come uh, and you will come and you will put your trust in him and you will be brought safely home. Colossians 1 verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been brought into the kingdom of the Son. And his task is not just to apply salvation, but Ephesians 1 22. All of life. Every 
aspect of life is under his control for the sake of the church. Let me read it again. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Three lovely words. For the church. For the church. He's orchestrating, organizing everything to see that all of life ties into his great plan and purpose. That quote uh, from the beginning. This book is about Jesus' long-range plan to give a new purpose to all parts of life, to spread righteousness and peace across the globe, across the street, and deep in our hearts. It is about his call for us to join him as loyal subjects in his kingdom, to take part in his great worldwide work of redemption. He can call us to do that because he has control and authority over everything in this world. A task given to him by his father. Not just because he rules everything, but because he is to take his rule over everything and particularly apply it to bringing his people to him, to bringing his people into his kingdom, to bring his people safely home, to orchestrate everything in this universe, everything in this world, in all of history, to bring glory to his father. That's what our Lord is doing. This is why we should love and relish the title and his role and rule as Lord. He is made Lord for us. He's our master for our good. Salvation couldn't happen without it. The Christian life couldn't happen without it. Those judges will only offer their verdict tomorrow if Daniel and Amy MacArthur's sovereign Lord allows them to breathe. They will give whatever verdict they give because the sovereign Lord of Daniel and Amy has decreed this is what will be best for those two of his servants and for the entire work of his kingdom. That's why whatever way the verdict goes, we don't need to despair. Our Lord is in control of all things for the sake of the church. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of nations, the Lord of politicians. He's the Lord of discovery and invention. He's the Lord of education and coincidence. He's the Lord of relationships and friendships. The Lord of every atom and of all the resources in this world for the sake of his servants. Father crowns the Son and seats him on a throne. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Ephesians uh, 1.20 says, That he, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He's made Lord. Because he is Saviour. And he is Lord so that he can apply his saving work powerfully across the globe throughout history. He is made Lord. Secondly, we want to see 
qualities of his lordship. Qualities of his lordship. Not so much what he is like, but what's it like for us to be his subjects? Not so much what he is like, but what's it like for us to be his subjects? I want to flag up three, and I've just taken them from David Vaughan. Well, what's it like to be under his lordship? Well, first of all, it's a universal lordship. Let's look at Romans 14. Uh, Because what Paul's doing in this chapter, he's saying there is a big truth that if you grasped it would help you with the small truths. There is a big fact that if you got your heads around it would help you with these little decisions in the Christian life. The, 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 the grit and the, the tricky decisions of everyday Christian living. And what is that big truth? It's that Christ is Lord. He's the master and they're the servants. As one servant to another servant, they're not meant to, to judge each other. Um, says here, he will stand to his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So this big truth, the first implication of it is, it's a universal lordship. Verse 7, for none of us, none of us, lives to himself alone. It takes in every single one of us, from the youngest Christian to the maturest believer. You know, those who would say, well, you know, you can, you can be a Christian when you've got Jesus as your Savior, but you really haven't got him as Lord. Well, that's nonsense, because this takes in all of Christ's people. It's universal. Verse 7b, the second part of it shows us that it's universal not just in the people that it takes in, but in the scope of what it takes in. None of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. Verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. This is like the two great bookends. Start the Christian life, and you finish the Christian life, and everything else in between, and including the start and the finish, is to the Lord. It's all-inclusive. We are under orders at all times. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of this universe over which the Sovereign Lord does not say or proclaim, this is mine. It takes in everything. No area is exempt. The world says to you, keep your faith to yourself. Keep Jesus Christ locked up behind your front door. Uh, Keep him out of farming. Keep him out of politics. Keep him out of your conversation. Keep him out of ethics. Keep him out of the news and the newspapers. Nonsense. Our Saviour is the universal Lord. His Lordship covers everything. A book uh, by a writer, Vern Poitras, has just Uh, been released or published, The Lordship of Christ. The subtitle is Serving Our Saviour All of the Time in All of Life with All Our Heart. 
There's the all-inclusiveness of it. And that means that there are opportunities to serve and to obey and to delight, to delight our Lord in everything. It takes in everything. From the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep, you can serve your Lord. Jesus was as much about his father's business when he was in the temple, because that's what he said about my father's business, as he was when he was on the cross. He was as much about his father's business when he was in the, uh, the carpenter's workshop as when he was teaching his disciples. It's a universal lordship. And because of that, here's the second thing, it's an elevating lordship. It's an elevating, it lifts. This, is, this, is your, this should be your experience of being a servant of the King of Kings. That lifts who you are and what you do. B.B. Uh, B. Warfield writes about a soldier under orders and how a soldier being under orders, that lifts him above the, the, the common man who is not under such orders. He says, It has lent meaning and importance to his life and made him a fellow worker in great undertakings. That's about a soldier. Lent meaning and importance to his life and made him a fellow worker in great undertakings. David Vaughan, speaking of this, takes the illustration of an ordinary soldier who is uh, working away in an office and a, a telegram arrives and he's been summoned by the general uh, of the country, a man of great character, of bravery and courage and valour, a man of nobility, and he, he summons this ordinary soldier to come and be uh, his assistant and to, to work with him. And he says when he comes, you are on call for me 24-7. You're my man. You're my man. And all day, every day, his life is tied to this general. But he's tied to the greatest of men and the greatest of plans. See how that elevates that ordinary soldier. And so it is with us. We have our lives tied to the greatest of men and the greatest of plans. And it is no insult uh, or lowly place to be a man under orders, for our Saviour describes himself as a man under orders. I tell you the truth, John five nineteen. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only see he can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does the Son also does. And the centurion, um, whose servant Jesus healed, said to Jesus, and I wonder if there's something in this of the centurion seeing who Jesus was. He says, I too, I too am a man under orders. Our Saviour as our Saviour was a man under orders from his Father in heaven. So this is not a, a, a lowly thing. This is an elevating thing. It elevates, it elevates our parenting. It elevates our farming. It elevates our conversation. 
It elevates our grave digging. It elevates our office work. It elevates our schoolwork. It elevates our suffering. Our Savior, our Master, has commissioned us to live for Him in this environment. You think about that. You know, we think, oh, there's somebody there, and they're really serving Jesus incredibly well. They're serving maybe as a missionary, or they're a famous pastor, and they're serving, and loads of people are finding out about Jesus. And you look at where your Master has placed you. You think, well, here I am. Maybe you think, think of all the praise and glory they'll get in heaven for all they've done. And here I am here. Nonsense. You're not responsible for being here. Your master has put you here in those circumstances to live for him. He has given you that task to do. And that lifts that task and puts it on a level with the other task that others have been given by their master. It's an elevating lordship. And thirdly, finally, it's a satisfying lordship. It's a satisfying lordship. And again, I'm I'm quoting David Vaughan here. He points to John uh, chapter 4. Remember the, the woman at the well. And the disciples have gone away into the town. And they've come back. And they've said to Jesus, Oh, you not had anything to eat? And Jesus says, Oh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Is he just being pious? No. But he finds satisfaction in obedience. He has found enjoyment and satisfaction in doing his Father's will, in being a man under orders. He has found satisfaction in carrying out his mission in that moment. There is an enjoyment to be found in doing our Master's will. Remember uh, the enjoyment you had as a child when the teacher said, would you go uh, down the corridor to Mrs. So-and-so or to the head master and would you get this for me and would you do that for me? And you felt ten feet tall. Um, because you had been sent on a mission and you fulfilled the mission and you obeyed what you were told to do, simple and all as it was, but you felt as if you'd achieved something. Well, our Master uh, gives us instructions and as we follow them, there is satisfaction to be found in accomplishing what our Master has given to us to do. If we remember that these are tasks given by our master for us to do. You see, there's that quote from the beginning that lordship and grasping the lordship of Christ shapes Christian piety. It shapes our enjoyment of living the Christian life, our enjoyment of our Lord and Savior. We forget that he has commissioned us We forget that he delights, and we'll come to this next time, God willing, that Jesus delights in your obedience. We forget that. Our master, you know, you hear the master in the parable, and you can can hear his delight. Well done, 
servant. Well done. How satisfying it is to have a Lord like that. And perhaps if we felt more of Christ's goodly lordship and realized his delight in our obedience and saw how it fits into his greater plan, we'd feel more of a sense of satisfaction. And we would lie down at night and we would say, whatever else I have achieved today, I have served my master. And I have delighted him. Would that not satisfy us? A satisfying lordship. An elevating lordship. And a universal lordship. So that means that there can be a satisfaction that lifts us up in every area of our lives. We think about it the other way around, don't we? Oh, he's got commands for us everywhere. We've got to obey him in every single detail. How burdensome. But he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light because there is satisfaction and elevation to be had in every area of life as we seek to live under his lordship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have no need. Your son has no need of servants. And yet he is Lord and we are his servants. And this is our privilege. Lord, help us to grasp what it is to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. To have a fondness about that title, Lord. When we say it, to say it with a tender reverence so that we will grow in an increasing devotion and fondness to Christ as our Lord. We thank you that his lordship encompasses everything in our lives. We thank you that it elevates us. We thank you that it has potential to satisfy us. And so we pray that that would be the case over these next weeks, that we would see it and that it would stay with us for life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.